The reading for today is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down right there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Caitlin. Morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. We are working our way through this series called We Want a King. We're going to be primarily in 2 Samuel chapter 6 today. Uh, Eventually, when we get there, we're also going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 7 as well. But before we get there, a few uh, other mentions. Um, First of all, today is what uh, we are terming Uh, Connect Sunday. It's the first time we've ever done anything like this at Redemption Arcadia. We're excited about it. And so we would just ask that you would uh, cooperate with us after the service and don't leave through the east doors. At least, um, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Humor us. Who is that? Was that Wheeler? No, somebody. Oh, thank you, Corey. I appreciate that. Corey Mishkin, ladies and gentlemen, let's give him a big hand now. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> humor us and go out that way and take a look at the tables that we have out there and especially take a look at Emmy. She is playing the part of the big floaty thing that you usually see at a used car sales lot. Okay. Anyway, she's out there. I'll be standing at the midweek activities uh, desk if you want to come and say hello to me. But we have all that stuff out there not to goad you into volunteering, but, but just to give you more information. It's an easy way to be able to get you uh, more information. So we're doing that today. Also, I recognize, and look how, again, our first service is usually full, but it's really full today, probably because it's the first, it's the opening day at home for the Cardinals, and so everybody comes to the first service, and then, you know, I, the only reason I'm excited that it's the NFL's first day is it means it's only four weeks until hockey season starts. Can I get an amen, my brothers? Yeah. One Pittsburgh Penguins fan over there is happy with me. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate that. Uh, anyway, uh, something uh, uh, more serious, though, is uh, on Wednesday night... Uh, September 21st. Ordinarily, I, as many of you know, I just do Bible study on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday night, um, September 21st, so we're going to have a very special event that night. It's not just going to be from 7 to 7.45. Instead, we're going we're to serve dinner. 
um, whatever that might, I have no idea what it'll be, but it'll be something that you can eat at 6.30, and then from about 7 to 8 o'clock, I'm going to be interviewing a guy named Marcus Doe. Um, Marcus is one of the pastors at Redemption Tucson. He's been with us about uh, four years now with Redemption, and he has an absolutely amazing story uh, growing up the first 11 years of his life in, in war-torn Africa. He lost his parents there during a civil war. He eventually came as a refugee to the United States, and he has built uh, a ministry here in church, but also he has started a new ministry called We Reconcile, which reconciles um, African-American uh, adult men who don't know their biological father with their biological father, but does it in a very healthy way involving all kinds of you know, mental health experts and all of that, which it's, it's, a, it's a really intense uh, but worthwhile ministry, and I just wanted him to be able to share that with you all. So I would encourage you to come. And by the way, that's not Marcus there. That's one of the couples he works with. There's Marcus right there. If you want a little preview of his story, uh, go to you know the TED Talks. He did a TEDx talk about forgiveness that's just magnificent. So go and check that out, and then come and be with us on Wednesday night, uh, September 21st, for an evening with Marcus Doe. All right. Um, I talked about Connect Sunday, I talked about hockey, so we're good. Now we can talk about something even more important, uh, the scriptures. I want to review, and then we need to kind of summarize, but we're going to dive very deep into 1 Samuel chapter 6. Um, I'm not saying that's where all the action is, but that's where the action is that we're going to look very deeply at uh, today. So last week we saw that Saul, King Saul had died, and David becomes the king, but his transition is not smooth. Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth, decides that he's going to be the king in the north, in Israel, the region of Israel. David begins his reign in the south, the, the region of Judah. And so we actually have a divided kingdom for a couple of years. But after a few years and a lot of ugliness and some very stealthy negotiations, David consolidates his reign, and now he is king over all of God's people, both Israel and Judah. And the two chapters we look at today... First, uh, 2 Samuel 6 and 7 tell us of David bringing the Ark of the Lord back to home base, back to Jerusalem, and of a new desire to build a temple, a house for the Lord. And just by way of preview, like I said, I'm going to spend most of our time in chapter 6 while generally summarizing chapter 7. You should have your Bibles out for this. We're going to read every word of chapter 6 and just part of chapter 7 in, in our process today. And also by way of preview, you've already heard it read. I want you to know that chapter 6 contains a troubling incident, and we're not going to shy away from it. But let's get started by introducing that troubling incident with the first four verses of chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of the Lord on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So where was the ark? This important, sacred piece of God's people, which signifies God's presence and provision for his people. Where has it been? 
Well, this guy named Abinadab had it in storage, and that was all the way back to before 1 Samuel chapter 6. So an entire scroll away was the last time we heard about this ark when the Philistines decided to just give it back to Israel because it wasn't helping them in any way, shape, or form. Uh, But it was in storage, and this did not please David. Of course, he wasn't king until now, so he couldn't do anything about it. We are told in the narrative of the same story in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 that David said this, Let us bring bring back the ark of the Lord, for in the days of Saul, during his reign, we as a people did not seek it. In other words, during Saul's reign, the people of Israel were not seeking God, primarily because their leader, Saul, had quit seeking God. And so they they just followed Saul in that. And that is not a wise thing to do, especially if you are God's people, to quit seeking uh, God. Essentially, what had happened was God's people had placed God not just in the back seat of the cart that they were driving, but they had essentially put him in the trunk. And David said, we we have to rectify that. But, but, there's a big but here. If you're a devout, Torah-embracing, Torah-studying, Torah-knowing Jew, reading this first paragraph, you already know something is going to go wrong. It spells trouble. So you may be asking how and why. Thank you for asking. I'll be glad to answer. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Mosaic Law of God, It absolutely, positively insists in a couple of different places. So it's it's an important part because it's not mentioned just once, but three times in the book of Numbers and in the book of Exodus, that the ark of God, which is known to always have the presence of God, his persona, his being, this ark was never to be touched by human hands when transporting it, Never to be transported on a cart, even if it's a new cart. Notice the scripture makes a point that it's a new cart, as if that makes everything okay. This ark is always to be transported by sliding poles into the four rings attached to each corner of the ark, and then carried on the shoulders of men, and always carried not just by any men, but by the Levitical priests. So while many may look at the next seven verses, verses 5 through 11, and wonder what is wrong with God, the person who knows Torah is already shaking their head in anticipation of what would come. They know that these guys, under David's leadership, we have to acknowledge that too, under David's leadership, they're handling God and his ark the way the world handles God, far too casually. Again, not a wise thing to do. In a way, they are treating the ark, and by extension, treating God like a good luck charm, a charm that we get to control somehow. And the saddest part is that both King David, who is running the operation, and Uzzah know the Torah, but they decided to do it their way instead. So let's read verses 5 through 11, and then we'll spend more time on that. And David and all those in the, and all, and all uh, the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing flow of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. 
And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So, even with the introduction I gave with the first four verses, you might already be thinking that this ark thing doesn't seem to be that complicated, and in most ways that is correct, but even so, that David, of all people, managed to mismanage the transport of the ark, helps us realize that we probably need to spend more time to fully unpack, understand, and digest what's happening here. So settle in on this, on this point. Obviously, we have two chapters that we're supposed to cover today. There are many different directions that we could have gone in in terms of what we were going to talk about today, but this is where I've chosen to focus today for a number of reasons. So let me just say two things before we dig in further to the ark. Number one, one of the reasons I love going through scripture at Redemption verse by verse or chapter by chapter on Sunday mornings is that this does not allow us to be cowards and avoid hard texts. This is a hard text. Second of all, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time here because this is the type of text that if we don't handle it with depth and attention, we at Redemption could rightly be accused of glossing over something that we find uncomfortable, which might legitimately call into question how serious we are about all aspects of God and not just the easy stuff. So as I said, settle in. Now again, we must first understand this. God specifically commanded that the ark should be transported only on men's shoulders, using the poles, and therefore that was one of the problems here. This is a serious question of reverence and regard for God. The ark was not to be touched by human hands. It's too holy. It was specifically constructed with four gold rings at each corner so that the two poles could be inserted into those gold rings and carried by four men, priests, on their shoulders without ever touching the ark. And here in verses 5 through 11, the ark was carried by an oxen, Pulling a cart, carried by oxen, pulling a cart. But as we'll see, it was, when we get to verses 12 through 15, we'll see that then, after three months, it was carried by men. This is confirmed again in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, their account, that account of the same event, where it's recorded that David specifically instructed the ark to be moved after this Uzzah incident by the Levite men. It seemed as though David learned a lesson, a lesson from this. Also, context is important, and in their context, a cart um, as a vessel of transport was actually quite insulting to God. The ark represents the very presence of God. The ark represents the king of kings. He deserves to be transported as royalty, and the poles and rings were how ancient royals were transported on the shoulders of men. Carts were for things. Carts were for worldly stuff. It was an insult to put the, uh, the ark on the cart in the first place. And I've read essay after essay and commentary after commentary on this by scholars who have studied this for decades. And and you're not wrong if you think that this still is one of the most baffling things in, in Scripture. Not one commentator or essayist I read wrote anything like this. Yeah, well, this reaction by God is totally cool, and I'm so glad he did it. Nobody said that. But these scholars and essayists understand why God did it, And they also understand at the same time that it does appear harsh. 
So as we all should do when God does something that's out of our realm of understanding and rationality, we should ask some questions and not immediately jump to judgment. And so here are some questions and answers. Number one, why does this upset God so much? Well, again, first, you need to go and read Exodus 25, Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7 about the proper handling of the ark. Remember, God calls us to process more than he does results because really the results are his. So this is about faith, obedience, and order. He calls us to faith, to follow him, to obey what he calls us to do, and the fact that our God is a God of order, not chaos, and this is how he wants things done. Here's another perspective from the scholar David Lamb. He writes that handling the ark is, in their ancient context, akin to the protocols of handling nuclear materials. So, would we want people to disregard the instructions and guidelines in handling nuclear materials? I would suggest that we don't. Furthermore, it's not as though David and Uzzah had no idea. The four rings are right there on the ark in front of them, metaphorically screaming out at anyone getting ready to transport the ark, this ark is to be carried with poles and not to be touched. So there were plenty of opportunities to do this correctly. They simply chose not to do it correctly. So the next question is, okay, but this still seems harsh. I can see how it was wrong, but wow, immediate death to Uzzah? Am I crazy for thinking this is a bit off? Was God unfair or impetuous? Even David got upset, right? No, you're not crazy, especially given our limited, mortal, finite understanding of God and his purposes. But there's also some irony to David's reaction. It was David who was overseeing the moving of the ark, and he did not follow the instructions from Exodus and Numbers. David's reaction was likely driven, at least in part, by the guilt he felt for Uzzah's death. In fact, the Kiel and Delich commentary of the Old Testament specifically points out points this out as to why David became angry. He recognized this calamity as mostly his fault. And I believe many of the Jewish as well as Christian commentators uh, agree uh, with this. This is a picture of how casually you and I at times approach God and how that can be a mistake. God is not the big guy in the sky. He's not the man upstairs. He's God, holy, righteous, True, pure, and just. Nothing less. David and Uzzah's error was a lack of obedience, reverence, and proper decorum, and a casualness about God. That leads to the next question. What, God might, what might God be tr- uh, trying to teach us in this instance? Well, maybe he's reminding us that good intentions and supposed innocence are no excuse for casually approaching the holiness of God. No matter how innocently this may have been done, touching the ark was in direct violation of God's will and wisdom, and it results in death. This was a means of preserving the sense of God's holiness and reminds us that we should approach God with reverence. Also, it teaches us that we should also revere God's word because they ignored God's word. And furthermore, I know that this whole example of Uzzah's death is very extreme, but sometimes it takes an extreme example for us to finally really learn and get something. Sometimes just a passing word isn't enough. We we have to be jolted out of our complacency. This This incident also clearly demonstrates the danger 
in disregarding the instructions of God and choosing instead to do what's right in our own eyes. I'm sure nobody in this room has ever done that before, right? We all do that. But Proverbs 14, 12 reminds us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So here's another question. Is Uzzah now, uh, with God, forgiven? I believe so, though we cannot say for sure. Uh, The scholar Andre Van Belkum would agree that Uzzah was not eternally condemned for this, but not everyone agrees with that because we just don't know. Scripture doesn't say so. I am a grace guy, though, in case you're wondering, and I know God's grace could handle this. We can't out-sin God's grace. And we need to remember that what happens to us temporally is not always an accurate reflection of what happens to us eternally. But this question also raises an issue that I have always been fascinated by. And here it is. It's interesting to me how focused, I mean myopically focused, so many people get, get, um, get on either, either the seeming harshness of God. They're only willing to discuss God in terms of passages such as this and then come to the conclusion that therefore God is most certainly a capricious, loathsome being or, or the other side of that spectrum, they, they just zero in and focus on only in terms of God is love. He's only love. Scripture even says that. God is love. And therefore, God would never be upset if I didn't follow some of his, you know, some of God's well-intended but not for me suggestions. So it's like these two, these two spectrums, and it just, it just doesn't work. We must always know, understand, and accept God in a comprehensive, full-bodied, scriptural way with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the forefront. And I think that takes us back to what we might learn from God and about God in this story. The scholar Michael Hoodman says it this way. I, love, I really I think this is right. Something of God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant seems to be lost in the church today. In truth, now listen to this, in truth, the more we try to bring God down to our worldly way of thinking and reasoning, the further away he seems from us. Counterintuitive, but true. Those who would draw near to God and have him draw near to them are those who approach him in reverence and obedience. I think he has a point. Okay, have we sufficiently beaten that horse? Are we ready to move on? But I think it was important for us to deal with that. So the next four verses, 12 through 15. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark, listen to this, look at that. Those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David would stop and sacrifice an ox and a fatted animal. So David's approach to transporting the ark is decidedly different now. And scripture wants us to see that. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark to the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So now we see that David brings the ark the way it was supposed to bring it, those who bore the ark, those who carried the ark. In other words, here you go. David saw his mistake, 
He repented of his mistake, he learned from his mistake, and he changed his approach, something that Saul was never able to do, and that's why Saul had so many problems. And David celebrates and dances with joy in a linen ephod. Okay, what's the linen ephod about? An ephod is a garment that the priests of Israel would would wear during religious services. And so David saw this as a religious celebration, and then he presided over a religious celebration in the next few verses, so why wouldn't he wear the ephod? Well, his first wife, Michael, the one he negotiated to get back from the house of Saul, remember that last week? She didn't like any of this. So now we get to read about that in the next, I don't know, eight or nine verses, so 16 through 23. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. So he was acting as a priest. Here, and, and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself uh, yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But, But the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. I can't help reading this passage without mentioning that that song that some of you like and have sung in church before some years ago, the song Undignified was inspired by this passage. Anybody remember that song? I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Okay, never mind. Let's move on. Uh, So that song was inspired by this. I will do anything to worship God. And I also want to talk about that word uncovered. So Michael says, you've uncovered yourself, essentially in shame before these servants and before the people. Uh, A lot of people translate that word uncovered as David was naked. That's That's not what the word means. It can mean that in certain contexts. But what it really means is that David allowed his passion and emotion to be uncovered. He was wearing his heart on the outside of his body at this point. And, and Michael was more embarrassed by how, how, um, how he was just unleashed in worshiping God. She, she got freaked out by that and thought that it was embarrassing and, and shameful. So that's really what it was. It, it, we, were, we are told he was wearing the linen ephod. Now, maybe that's all that he was wearing, and so it wasn't quite the layered clothing that maybe she would have rather him wear, but he was still wearing something. But some people like to say, oh, he was naked, and that was the problem. That wasn't the problem. She was embarrassed by David's attitude towards God. That's what was bothering her. So David was serving the people. He's celebrating. 
And Michael despised David for this. She was jealous, embarrassed, probably both. Whatever the issue, however, it leads to the first time. This is interesting too. It leads to the first time that David spoke in a tone of superiority about himself in relationship to Michael's father, Saul. I'm the one he chose over Saul. I am the king. That's, that's the first time we've heard him do that. Everything up until now, he was just, he was exalting Saul, even though Saul was wrong on so many fronts. Now he's saying, look, God chose me over your dad, Saul. And, and implied in that, of course, is why don't you just go do something else right now and quit, quit confronting me with this. And apparently, it also leads, this event, to Michael not being able to have children, which is a bit odd. So at any rate, this pushback by Michael really doesn't end well for her. And honestly, again, I think it's one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible. So why would, we, why would they include it in the Bible? Why include it in the Bible? Well, here's why. David resolutely declares that nothing will ever stand in the way of him worshiping God. So the obvious question is, how about us? How about us? Are we allowing things to stand in the way of our worship and reverence for God? Are we allowing this world and its culture and its edicts to get in the way of us being faithful to God and standing in reverence of God and asking for his wisdom? And so what happens and how do we wrap this up? Well, David bringing the ark into his own into his hometown and knowing the way God has blessed him, empowered him, and been with him, David decides that it's time to build the temple, not just a tabernacle or a tent, but the temple for the Lord. And up until now, they'd been using these tabernacles, these tents for God. It was time for God to have a real house. And we also find in chapter 7 that God concurred with this vision that David had for building the temple. Unfortunately, he didn't agree that David was going to be the king that built it. Rather, it was going to be David's son, Solomon, who would end up building the temple, which will be later in this series. And by the way, if we had the time, there's a whole other Bible study there as well in chapter 7. Anyway, after Nathan the prophet explains to David all that will happen, and yes, this is the same guy that went to David after the Bathsheba incident, after Nathan explains to David all that will happen, the chapter ends with a magnificent prayer by David to God about God's sovereignty and goodness. So I want you to see this. Even in the wake of this tragedy with Uzzah, David praises God wholeheartedly. And let me just read that prayer for you. Settle in. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? 
And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. That is a magnificent prayer, only cheapened by my reading of it. And I think it's interesting. There's one thing in that prayer that I really want to point out that's really important. We've talked about this before, especially concerning Saul. When, when the people of Israel decided that they wanted a king, their big problem was they forgot who their king was. They forgot who God is. They also were forgetting what God had done for them, bringing them out of their slavery from Egypt and establishing them as God's people. And they were not aware of what God was doing for them in the moment. Notice in David's prayer, he continues to say, you are God, you are the Lord. He talks about how the Lord brought them out of Israel. And then he talks about what God is doing now, today, for his people and for David. That's a really good prayer. I'm not saying that every one of your prayers or my prayers should be like that, but it's a good prayer to pray, to remember and acknowledge who God is, to remember what he's done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and to understand what God is doing for us even now. That is a magnificent prayer. So what do we take from all of this? Well, I think there's something pretty big. That's what we should take from this, and here it is. Uh, I've just found, and, and I'm guilty of this true, That most of us want a God and a relationship with God to work this way. We initiate, and he responds. We command, and he serves. We decide, and he acquiesces. Now, come on, be honest. Isn't that how we mostly treat God? The reality is that he initiates, and we respond. He commands, and we serve. He decides, and we agree. And really, when you stand back and look at what happens in chapter 6, and then look at the response of David and of God in chapter 7, what we see is that God expects and deserves reverence and a commitment to following him. And that means that when we look to the cross of Jesus, it too commands reverence and a commitment to follow him. Never take Jesus for granted. Even in this story of Uzzah and David, we see that they cannot do what only Jesus could do, follow him perfectly and fulfill the law. And that's why we give our lives to Jesus, because he's done that for us before he went to the cross. We give it all to him. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you that even in a difficult text like this, we see your grace and mercy. We see your goodness and your holiness. And and, and though it troubles us, I'm sure we feel bad for Uzzah. He was only doing what, 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 what it seemed like just a reaction, muscle memory. 
He was doing what he thought was right, and he gets punished for it. God, help us to understand that that punishment comes from a heart that calls for us to be faithful and obedient to who God is, his process, and allow him the results. So God, I pray for us that we'd have the courage to follow you, even when it's really difficult to follow you, that we'd have the courage to pray uh, prayers of your goodness and your blessing, even when we feel like you haven't been that good and you haven't blessed us very much lately. Help us to be able to do that. Help us to go to you with reverence, but also, as Hebrews says, to come with you, come at you with boldness and confidence because you have a throne of grace. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to enter our time of reflection and response. We're going to sing two more songs. And, uh, and then, Tyler, you're going to be doing our benediction today, giving us a little bit more instructions about Connect Sunday for those who can hang around. Um, if our communion servers would please come forward. When we encounter difficult texts like this, what we have to remember is that the crucifixion is also a difficult text. That God decided for us, because he loves us, God decided for us that his son would go to the cross to do something that we can't do, and that would be to pay for our sins so that we'd be forgiven, reconciled to God. But it didn't end at the cross. It's still not even over. That's the good news. He's coming again because he's resurrected. Three days later, he came busting out of that tomb. And so Jesus, knowing that this would happen on that night before he's betrayed with his disciples, he starts this whole uh, Lord's Supper thing, coming to the table of communion coming to be with Him and identifying your life with Him. So when you step out into that aisle and you come forward, you're remembering those words that He told His disciples, that He took the bread and He broke it and He said, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that He took the cup and He said, this is the cup of the new covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we come... We come in confession, but we come in celebration. And when you head back to your uh, table, when you've taken your I'm sorry, your seats, and you've taken your elements, and you feel ready by the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, please stand if you can and, and join us as we sing these last two songs.
Let's read this out of Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grove for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Amen.
Jesus.